Well, hello, everyone. This is Jim coming to you from the pandemic yet again. Uh, yeah, what's going on? Um, it is Star Wars Day, just to say it is May 4th, uh, which is the day after the San Francisco quarantine was supposed to end, but they extended it till the end of May at the very least. So we got another four weeks of this. I, I yeah. That's what's going on. I don't know why I'm talking about this. Like, anybody listening to this? There's nobody listening to this. Nobody's listening in for coronavirus pandemic quarantine updates, so I don't know why the hell I'm trying to be topical. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, I haven't done this in a while, actually. It's been almost a week. I I did one a week ago. I think it was bonus coffee day, and that's where I, like, made twice as much coffee as I usually do, just a ton of it, drank it all one morning, and then kind of verbally spazzed out uh, onto the recording. I don't remember what I talked about. I did one the day after, too. I did, I'm did. i not going to publish that one. That was just me kind of trying to fight falling asleep for 45 minutes while talking. I don't remember what I talked about. I just remember I was really, really hungover, like withdrawn from the coffee. Like I was like, you double the dose of caffeine the next day, you have it back to the normal amount. And it's just, I just could not. Oh, it was so brutal. It was terrible. Yeah. I'm starting to forget what, it, what, what exactly I've talked about here. You know, not that I have an agenda, but I'm trying, I don't remember what subjects there's just a lot of things floating around in my head. And at some point I'm always like, yeah, you know, I'll write that down or talk about that at some point. Just kind of bookmark it. Uh, it's, it's been long enough now since I've done these things. I've gotten away from this whole podcast and thing. I don't remember what I have talked about and what I haven't, what I've recorded. It's going to start being overlap again, I'm sure. But whatever. It's not why I'm doing this. Not like I'm doing this to educate or to inform. It's just, it's all in good fun. Just a way of having a conversation with myself in a way that, yeah, is acceptable. The people walking by in the hallway outside where I live, they might hear me talking. I can just be like, you know, I'm talking because I'm recording a podcast. That's it. I kind of feel like my brain is shrinking, like in my head. I kind of feel like it's just sort of, you know what, apparently we, we're not really needed. Like this lump of matter, like I'm trying to think for you. You apparently don't go out and do anything. You never talk to anyone. You never interact with anyone socially. We're just going to like, you know, just calmly obsolete ourselves. We're just going to put ourselves out of commission, save energy. Yeah, I kind of feel that way. It's like there's something, I don't know. I don't know exactly how to put it, but I feel like there's something contracting in me. Some, I don't know what it is. I'm coping all right, but I don't know. I feel like I'm coping all right. Sometimes I wonder. But anyway, we can kick this off with something. Uh, what 
What's been going on? Okay, so I have been doing a little bit of reading. I'm still reading Carl Jung. I am trying to read my way through slowly the collected works of Carl Jung. Uh, this man, yeah, is quite amazing to me. I, yeah, I've definitely talked about him before. Um, I read his one book, Man's, what was it? Modern Man in Search of a Soul. I always want to say Man's Search for Meaning, but that's Viktor Frankl's um, concentration camp. Uh, existential peace. No, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Uh, I read that one. And that one was really good. Each chapter seemed to make a different point very deeply. They made you, I, I had to sit there and like think about it, scrutinize it, kind of really digest what was being said. And it really seemed, he's, he, he's just, uh, I don't know, he has the right balance of I'm going to make a point, but I'm going to make it by dancing circles around it. You know, I'm not just going to like hit the nail on the head. I'm going to kind of circle it a bit. And sort of cast these magic spells towards the center. Like, so it kind of, he hits on the point, but not so directly that it just takes away any imagination. Like, he manages to write about something scientific in a way that still seems somewhat mystical. And you still have to kind of fill in the gaps. There's still some room for interpretation. And he's just drawing together things from different fields in such a way that I don't know. It engages me. It engages what is left of my brain. What part of my brain is still functioning. It's, it's interesting. But any of the, the volumes in his collective works are challenging. They're not simple things. Um, now the, the one that I've been reading here and there is, uh, volume seven, I believe. It's called Two Essays on Analytical Psychology. It's a very, very small one. And as far as, as far as like if you're if you're a lay person, you know a little bit about psychology and you want to and I don't know anything about psychology, I know very little. But if you want to jump like into his collected works and you want like the the one that gives you the summary, like the, the best tip of the iceberg into his line of thinking, it would be that one, volume seven. And it doesn't look like much. Um but it seems to be the best introduction to his analytical work uh, that I found in the collective collected works so far. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. Uh, so one of the things I liked about his, the, the modern man in search of a soul is he's talking about, he mentioned Adler and I heard of Adler, but I knew nothing about Adler, nothing about his model. And he was comparing He's comparing like like Freud's model to Adler's model, like the way of thinking about psychological well-being and more important, not well-being. Like at what point is, how do you make sense of a dysfunction that's psychological, a neurosis? And so I, I'm absolutely going to butcher all of this right now, but, um, you know, roughly speaking, uh, Freud's model has something to do with, with sex. Like there's a sex drive. Um, 
it pushes you on towards things. And this is somehow tied up with our relationship with our parents because, you know, they were the people that we, you know, had the most interactions with when our brains were forming, when they were at their most pliable, when we were young. And so the, this, I think, is Freud's key insight, our, our early relationship with our parents counts for a lot, counts more, counts for more than we give it credit to. And it counts in such a way that we're not conscious of it. You know, we, we can't just tap into how did our, my familiar relationship with my parents, how is that affecting my relationships now? It's just, it, we can't sit there and just look at it nakedly the way you might look at, uh, I don't know, a picture hanging on the wall. It's latent obscured um but ultimately the i don't know it's the yeah something to do with with sex roughly speaking um adler's formulation of it and adler was a student of freud and i believe that they broke over this i don't know how acrimonious this was i don't know if they had a falling out the way freud and Jung did but adler thought it was more about the will to power so to speak to borrow a line from Nietzsche, but the notion that man might feel inferior, he might have desires, he might have a drive to accomplish something in his life, and the neurosis is based around trying to compensate for an inadequacy, wanting to think of oneself as being more powerful than one is. Uh, the neurosis is some kind of fiction around trying to think of oneself as being more than one is um, wanting to, to seek after power, you know, wanting to, wanting a sense of importance, if you will, as a way to put it. Um, I, heard, I heard a quote once, something along the lines of uh, most of the evil done in this world is not by people who are trying to do evil, but people who are just really insecure and trying to find a way to think well of themselves. So their actions are led astray. They're just, they're trying to, they're trying to accomplish something. They're trying to inflate their sense of, of self-worth. So, wanna, will to power. So these two competing things, um, Jung talks about both of them. And he says that, uh, at least in Modern Man in Search of a Soul, that uh, where Freud's method breaks down, where everything seems to be about the desire for pleasure. Um, that's a good starting point, he says, but it isn't sufficient. And he says that like Adler's model is much more applicable in other cases. It's much more generalizable. And at the very least, he said, more importantly, Adler's school of thought, like Adler's therapy was much more pragmatic. Um, because whereas Freud was like, let's figure out the origins of your neuroses. Adler was saying like, look, maybe we can't figure out what the origin is, but let's, let's look at what's driving you and let's look at what you can do differently in your life to make things better for yourself. Let's, how, let's talk about practical strategies for improving your lot, as it were. Um, so he thought in terms of practical application, Adlerian therapy was much more useful. And he thought this was particularly the case, like the dichotomy wasn't he thought it had to do with social success. So he thought that both of the schools were valid, but his thinking was that there are people who are successful socially, 
they feel adequate as individuals, consider them people that have a healthy self-image, they're going after what they want in life. He thought they're probably driven by pleasure more. Freud's model works for them. They're, they're driven by seeking out uh, things in the external world. They want, they want to, uh, yeah, they, they, they want to seek out, they're, they're going to be more hedonistic, if you will. Um, now he said like there's people out there who are less socially successful, people who are shy, cower in the shadows, don't say a whole lot. These people haven't really self-actualized, especially in the social sense. Now he thought that Adler's model would apply to them. He thought that they're not really seeking pleasure. They're not going to be hedonistic or, or um, seeking that sort of stimulus. What they want is a sense of importance. They want to overcompensate for somehow for their lack of social success. They want to feel important. They want to be seen as important. They're trying to act that way so as to command respect from their fellow human beings. And of course, I've, I happen to fall much in the la- more in the latter category. Like so- socializing has always been m- more of a problem for me. You know, I've never like been like a, a gregarious guy, the life of the party. I've always been more introspective. You know, let's think through ideas, you know. Um, and yeah, so the, most of what, if I have psychological dysfunction, they're based more in, I'm looking for a sense of importance. You know, I want... I want to feel like I matter. So Adler's model definitely helps me more than Freud's ever did. Uh, but the difference there makes sense. And this is it. This, he was talking about this in Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Now, he, he breaks this down even further and in more detail in two essays on analytical psychology, um, where he talks very, very early on about these two different schools of thought. And he, he makes basically the same point slightly differently but so as to say that like yeah that there is the freudian model and there's the adlerian model but he didn't see them as being one being wrong and the other being right it seemed that freud and adler were at odds with each other each of them insisted on their own school of thought uh but from his perspective he thought that sometimes one worked and sometimes the other one worked it just depended on the patient so he was looking for patterns as to what is it this distinguishes the two. Why does Freud seem to work uh, in some cases more than Adler and vice versa? And uh, what he what he touched upon was thinking about thinking about it this way: the notion that you, if you're sort of like Freud's whole thing was, it has to do with your mother and father, meaning you're focused on. Objects outside of yourself, external things. You're looking for things the world can give you. You're looking for relationships. You're looking, you're, you're very concerned and fixated with how you are relating to the world and how the world is relating back to you. That is where your energy is concentrated. And Adler was more something inward focused. So it's, it's okay, what about me is inadequate? What about me do I need to fix? Um, yeah, what do I need to do in order to gain a sense of, I feel all right with myself? And the, the, so the language he uses is to say Freud is very much 
concerned about the object. Like you with an object, with another person, externally focused. Um, the Adlerian thought is more internally focused. I'm focused on my inward life, on who I am, and how to mix that about, and how to, yeah, bring about change in that. How do I influence that? And he, you, he basically says, okay, well, this is the difference between he defined it as being extroverts and introverts. So extroversion and introversion. And so you can see where this is, this is headed. I mean, this is, um, this is one of the most interesting things I learned. I was reading one of the chapters in Modern Man in Search of a Soul. It was a chapter called Psychological Types. And I realized maybe two thirds of the way through, I was like, this is, he's talking about the Myers-Briggs type indicator stuff. This is exactly what he's talking about. He's laying the ground for this. And I don't think that's where he, I think he's, he's summarizing it in that chapter in that book, but I don't think that's where he originally devised it. But it's a chapter written in a book for the layperson. And yeah, I looked into it. Apparently the, the Myers-Briggs personality quiz that gives you your MBTI, this comes from Carl Jung. And part of it, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm mostly in the, in the right here. A lot of it was him trying to say, okay, you have the Freudian school and the Adlerian school that are odds with each other. He's trying to say they're both right. If you look at them under a single rubric, if you create something that's superordinate to both of these, then they both work. They're just mutually exclusive to each other, not because one is right and one is wrong, but because it depends on the individual. It depends on the proportion of introversion or extroversion in the individual. And how you should look at the individual uh, is basically how they relate to the world, a measure of introversion or extroversion, and that should tell you what your model should be in analyzing them. Absolutely fascinating. I th What I found particularly interesting is he talks about, Carl Jung talks about this in his is volume six of his collected works, which is psychological types, in which he goes into way more detail about this than probably anyone, definitely more detail than I need to read, really. Um, the first 70 pages of it are like him talking about classical thought, so the thought of ancient Christians and the early sects of, of Christianity and uh, the ancient Greeks kind of how those thoughts develop through, um, you know, from the classical period into the, the medieval period, into the Renaissance. Like he sort of looks at all of these ideas, like the philosophies and the theologies that were common in this time, how they sort of connected with each other. And he analyzes all of them, as well as the individuals who promulgated them in a psychological light. Like in the light of modern psychology, he's going back and psychoanalyzing the early Christians, the ancient Greeks, saying here's here's kind of what their philosophies were, and here's probably what that means they were um, from, he didn't call it this, but from a Myers-Briggs perspective. Why did they have this way of relating to the world? And here's who they were, which is really, really interesting. I, I find that very, very interesting. If you're If you're interested in, you know, Myers-Briggs stuff. You just want to know how he classified human beings. 
this is probably not all that interesting. But it was a pleasant surprise for me to open up this book and the first 70 pages were him psychoanalyzing um, a lot of early Western thought. But he got the, the idea, the notion that there are these four different personality functions. So Myers-Briggs has like the four letters, which can be, is on some gradient between two extremes somewhere. And most people fall more on one side than they do on the other. Um, he got this original notion from the Gnostics. They apparently broke down personality the same way. The Gnostics were an early sect of Christianity that died out pretty early on the first few centuries. It did not persist. Although, I don't know, there might be Gnostics today. I still, I, don't, I went into an, like an Eastern bookshop that had a lot of Buddhist stuff. A lot of the Gnostic ideas are quite Buddhist. And they have like a Christianity section and it just has Gnostic stuff in it. I, I get the sense that there might actually be uh, Gnostic Christians, people still practicing this. I don't know much about that. I think it's, it's more just inwardly focused. You know, the, um, the kingdom of heaven is within you. I mean, that's a quote from Luke, but that's not... When Jesus is saying it in Luke, he doesn't mean it in a Gnostic fashion. There is a quote in, I think, the Gospel of Thomas, uh, which is considered a Gnostic gospel, I believe, uh, which he says, yeah, the kingdom of heaven is within you. If your leaders tell you that heaven is in the sky, the birds will beat you there. If your leaders tell you that heaven is in the sea, the fish will beat you there. So don't seek from without. The kingdom of heaven is within you. You have you have the light inside of you. If only you will look, which is a very Eastern idea, a very Far East kind of sounds more like Buddhism than it does uh, Christianity. And of course, historians speculate that maybe Gnosticism died out because it uh, was kind of at odds with the notion that you would even need a church. If one, all one has to do is meditate and seek God within themselves, you really don't need a church or a hierarchy. And while the earliest Christians, I don't think the apostles were thinking, we want to, we want power. I, I happen to believe that they were probably earnest, spiritually enlightened individuals who were hoping to spread the same spiritual enlightenment of some kind. I think they, were, they thought they were onto something and they tried to promulgate it as best they could for reasons I think they thought were sound. I don't think it was till much later, um, probably not when, when the Romans finally get a hold of it, that it was like, okay, we need to figure out how to establish this as an institution that is tied into the state. You know, as soon as Constantine makes the decision, okay, I'm going to convert to Christianity and we're going to stop persecuting the Christians. It becomes much more appealing to um, be a Christian from somebody who wants to be, or for a person who wants to be in, who wants to be looked upon favorably by the political authorities. If you lived in ancient Rome under Constantine, it made sense suddenly to be a Christian. You weren't going to be persecuted. And the emperor right before Constantine, he is probably the most, he was the worst in terms of Christian persecutions. Um, 
started with a D, Dio, something like, I can't remember these names. But yeah, so everything changes when Constantine converts. And it becomes much more about, we have to establish this as something that is very closely tied in with politics. Uh, Christianity before Constantine gets a hold of it, before the Roman Empire decides to kind of absorb it as an endosymbiont to make it its own. Like, I think that would be interesting to know more about. I wish I, wish I knew more about the earliest Christian developments uh, before Rome gets a hold of things. Um, but I'm sure it's not, not as interesting as I think it is. It's probably just, yeah, there's stuff like the Gnostics. A lot of these divergent opinions about things that people hadn't really People haven't figured this out yet. That is so fascinating to me that this is, I'm getting away from young here, but so I'm just, just going wherever. Um, yeah, I mean, people ask the question, like, how did the earliest Christians not know? Like, how could you have been living somewhere in Mesopotamia or the Roman Empire or wherever there was Christianity in the second or third centuries and not know? what Jesus meant. Constantine didn't convert until the early fourth century. So like a hundred years after Jesus died, you've got maybe a couple hundred years where you're really far removed from anyone who knew Jesus. And the New Testament hasn't been established. That That's the question really is like, why didn't these earliest Christians who were living in these time periods, why didn't they just open up their Bibles and figure out what the truth was? Why didn't they just, they didn't have, like the, what we know is the New Testament hadn't been put together yet. Like which writings were to, to become part of the Christian Bible? There was not even the notion of there is a Bible. So if you were a Christian in, in the first few centuries after Jesus died, you're kind of just going on whatever's happening in your community. I mean, the epistles that originally were written by Paul, get those get copied and circulated around. Like 40 years after Jesus died, somebody writes down a gospel. Like I think the gospel of Mark was first. And yeah, you, you would go to a church and these writings were not everywhere. It wasn't like there was a copy of this book in every single seat, in every pew, in every church. You were just going in and whatever they happened to have, what you heard. The message of Christianity was just kind of an accident of whatever writings you had access to. And there were a lot more writings that were floating around than just uh, uh, what's in the Bible now. You, you really would have no way of knowing. You'd have no way of knowing up from down. You'd just be getting hearsay, rumors. It really would just be an accident of your circumstance and, and the information that you had access to. Anyway, yeah, I think that's I think that's interesting stuff. But yeah, so Carl Jung took this from the Gnostics. Um, at least took this breakdown, and um, at, at least from at least partially from there. And yeah, broke it down. There's four different functions. I couldn't tell you what the functions are, but you can analyze people along these dimensions and. Uh, 
Yeah. It's a start. I mean, Carl Jung himself, I think, was... I think he was definitely intelligent and deep enough and abstract enough of a thinker to not devise something like a Myers-Briggs personality quiz. I, I think he might have looked at that slightly suspiciously. It's too categorical. It's like you're one of 16 personality types. It's like, I, you know, he would have known, and he probably would have asserted that there are more than 16 different types of people in the world. And he would have been careful to note that any of the four dimensions are not binary. There's a gradation. It's not that you're introverted or extroverted. You fall somewhere in the middle. And you probably don't fall in the same place all the time. It's probably shifting depending on your circumstances, on your temperament, how you're feeling. It can change over time. It's fluid. Um, I actually have tried taking a Myers-Briggs quiz, and I've always gotten the same thing. I've always gotten INFP. And I've gone back to it numerous times and taken the quiz again, just knowing that that is the, that is the score I'm most likely to get. That's most likely, likely going to be my type indicator. And so I try and answer the questions honestly, but I try and game them a little bit. I'm like, well, I feel like I answered this differently last time. And I feel like it's changed, so I'm going to answer it. Yeah, I'm going to answer it this way instead. Maybe that'll change my result. You know, being honest, but just think, thinking, okay, I'm gonna. This this feels different than what I answered last time, so maybe that modifies the result. Yeah, I don't know how many times I've taken it. Close to half a dozen. It's always INFP. It doesn't seem like anything I can I can game. Um. Yeah. So I mean, there's. It's interesting that it would be that consistent, even at times when I think uh, I'm having. I don't know mood changes changes my perception of uh, but yeah and there's also the five factor personality that's that that's something I don't know about I took a quiz for that once as well and got the score but I don't remember that one that that's less I don't remember anything about that I remember like I'm more neurotic like I'm higher in neuroticism than not but I don't think I remember anything about the four dimensions, the, any of the other ones. That one doesn't quite have the same, uh, I don't know, staying power. People seem to know Myers-Briggs pretty well, especially if you're like on the dating apps. That seems to be a thing people share. Like here's my Myers-Briggs person. I actually find it helpful. People are cynical about it sometimes. They're like, I don't want to know what your MBTI is. I don't care. I'm not going to tell me who you are. The thing is, yeah, there are more than 16 different personalities in the world, granted. Baby, I know it. But it's still a starting point. It is a starting point. It's not useless. It does give you something to go on. Um, can't be hard and fast rules. But it's still a guide. I find it. I find it useful. I really do. I don't overthink it. But if it's kind of like, okay, you know, I have to like 
come up with an opener. I mean, this is, this is useful in any context, especially at work. If you happen to know somebody's Myers-Briggs score, that you can sense who they are as an individual. But on the dating apps, if it's like, okay, I need to come up with some kind of opener. I need to figure out how I'm going to... It's interesting to have some guidelines as to what a person's communication style might be. You know, it's not going to tell you how to be fake. But I think it can tell you how to, like, focus your conversation in a way that the person might be more receptive to it. Yeah, there's definitely some people who, who appreciate seriousness more than humor and vice versa. And I, I'm not sure I've ever, like, seen somebody's mind. Like, there's definitely some Myers-Briggs type scores. I really doubt I would ever end up connecting with any of them. But the ones that I'm not, I don't sense I'd be compatible with. Like people who are just a certain way that they wouldn't be interested in somebody introverted and you know, feelsy like me. Um, I don't think I've ever not messaged somebody because of their Myers-Briggs score, but I could see it happening. I could see it being like, well, you know, just because of the, because of this and the other information on their profile, uh, I'm probably not what they're looking for. You know, a combination of things. Yeah, it's hard to say. The, um, I've been interested in astrology lately. And that's another one. This is another one that Jung used in order to come to a deeper understanding of his patients. So they're kind of a, a method of yeah, starting point. It's like, it's like figuring out are they introverted or extroverted? You know, thinking, intuitive, perceiving, judging. So he would do um, natal charts uh, for his patients, um, and he would use that to uh, assume, to kind of put together a profile of their temperaments, and it would help guide him in his line of questioning. Um, I, I, I don't know much more about this. Like Jung and astrology, to be honest, I'm, I find it interesting that he used it to such great effect, and the fact that he, he wrote about it. Somebody told me that apparently he wrote about it very early on, and he did it as a psychologist at a time when it was not at all fashionable to write about such a thing. Like, it was downright controversial. Like, hey, I'm using this not scientifically valid method of divination, reading people's horoscopes, um, or I guess not horoscopes, but in natal charts, uh, in order to figure out how to treat them therapeutically. You know, it wouldn't drive the treatment, but it was a starting point for a conversation. You know, it was a, he could use that as a guideline, much in the way that he might use Myers-Briggs for those dimensions. And yet, so I, I connected with one girl on the dating apps, and we've actually been talking outside of the apps for the last week or so. Um... And I've been curious about astrology, so I've been watching videos, uh, just looking into it, saying, okay, well, what is, what is really here? And this girl I've been talking to happens to be, it's a hobby of hers. She was a psych major, 
And so she's kind of been looking into it. Um, she's been, she knows more about it than I do. And what I will say is that it is, I don't think you can, I don't think you can look at, so, so what we did was, here's the thing. You have to know somebody's birthday, their t- time of birth and the place they were born. That tells you, that tells you what their sun sign is, which is what you look up for your horoscope and the moon and their ascendant signs. And this tells you different things about them. So we, we used an app. We shared each other's information with each other, put it in, and it gives you a comparison. Like what is romantic compatibility between two people who just met? Where these are their, um, natal charts. It gives you kind of a compatibility report and talks about. And I know that this information is, it's clearly made to be general. Like it's structured in such a way. So if you're reading, if you're reading the interpretation of your natal chart, if you're reading a horoscope, it says, well, your sun sign is this, therefore you're going to be very much like this in temperament. It, it is kind of general in a way. So, so it is to apply to anyone. It does use some wiggle words. It might say, well, on the one hand, you might be really shy and reserved. But on the other hand, you might have natural confidence and, and exude it and be really outgoing. So there's kind of some, some, there's definitely wiggle words in it. And even if your stars, when you were born, I mean, even if the position of the planets say something about who you are temperamentally, I'm not, I'm much more confused when it starts talking about here's the way things are probably because your upbringing was this way. What did, what do the stars when I was born know about my upbringing? How does that play into this? So there's a lot I don't understand about it, but, and I, and I really can't do a scientific test because it's not like I can, what I want to do, I've said this before, is like use a site where you can take a quiz. You put in your thing, it gives you a quiz where you can say like, here are four possible statements. Pick the one that resonates with you. And one of them, one of the four, is from your birth chart, your interpretation, your nail chart. And the other three are from somebody else's. They would not be anywhere near yours. And I, I want to know, do you do you pick your own? Would would your own resonate with you in that you would pick it out of a lineup more than the other ones? That's the test I want to do. I want to I want to do that. Without doing that, I really can't say. With that being said, what it has, so there's a couple of apps. There's one I use called Pattern, um, which is just, that's probably the most accessible one. It doesn't inundate you. It has a very, very sleek design, nice font. A lot of thought went into it. It's, uh, it's very, very easy to just jump into. And what it says about me is definitely uncannily accurate. There's a lot to it that I look at and say, you know, yeah. This is an interesting summation of who I am. Even if it's not all accurate, at least is touching upon a lot of points um, to give structure to things, like how you would think about yourself, how you would evaluate yourself. Uh, there's another one called Time Passages, which is a little bit more, that one's a little more rough in terms of the user interface a lot more complicated, and it gives you way more information. If it gives you an assessment about something, it's telling you because, you know, your, um, I don't know how any of this goes, your, your Mercury was in Taurus or something. I don't know how these things relate. 
of the signs on the planets overlap. They're both together somehow. So that this will give you like insight into that. It's not just the, the passage, sorry, the pattern just says like, here's what we think. Um, there's a breakdown in time passages that says like, well, here, here's the planet and the sign. Those are together. And here's what it means for you. Here's how strong it is. And here are your aspects. Here's how the planets relate to each other. There's some trigonometry, some like some angles associated with it. I'm not even going to try and explain how any of this works, but the time passages gives you like insight. It tells you like how the sausage is made, roughly speaking. Um, so those are the two I've used, and they they both definitely say things that resonate to some extent. Anyway, the point I was making is that yes, yeah, so we're we're in quarantine right now on this lockdown, and I've been talking to this girl from one of the dating apps. Um, a lovely person. I really enjoyed talking to her. It was definitely, it was just like the app said. We compared our charts and it said, you two will feel like you have known each other for years. You might hit it off right away. And uh, we definitely did. And so we're using this one app to compare, to kind of assess compatibility with each other. And Honestly, in terms of like what you can do when you're talking with a person over text, when you cannot meet up because you're both a shelter in place during a, a virus pandemic, um, that was a pretty good way of doing it, actually. That was very, very interesting that like, going through it is like, hey, what does it say about this? Does this resonate with you? How do, what do you think about this? If you feel like getting to know somebody and you're like kind of comfortable with them, you have a rapport, like that is actually a very interesting way of like, it's something you can do when you're getting to know somebody and you can't just, you can't just meet them face to face. It's entertaining. If nothing else, it's like, like I said with, with myself, it gives structure to the conversation. It's a starting point. You can look at each point and kind of say like, well, does that resonate with you? Does that, does that make sense? In what way is this wrong? You know, like, don't assume that, that you're learning who the other person is from their natal chart. I mean, far be it for Please don't do, please don't do that. But still, that you can, I don't know, it, give, it, it, it does sort of give a structure to the conversation. You can talk about these things. It's better than just starting from nothing. You know, you can at least talk about the parts of it that are wrong and why they're wrong. And uh, it's kind of fun. I mean, why not? At this point, I would try try anything. Like, you know, uh, apparently she's into tarot cards as well, which I, I haven't asked her much about that yet, but I'm very, very curious what is there. I'm a little... I don't know. I don't know anything about it. The one thing I do know, I looked into palmistry. One of my exes got a palmistry book once and she was trying to, to, uh, that, that I don't have, um, I don't know. To the extent that I looked at that and looked at people's palms, 
to the extent that I was able to investigate it scientifically in any way, not even scientifically, just qualitatively, it really felt like, I don't know, I'm very skeptical about palmistry. Like the lines on your palms are going to, I don't know, help determine who you are and what your life is going to be like. Like it lays it out. I, I have, I'm awfully skeptical of, of that, but you know, it, just, it didn't seem to work. Astrology, there seems to be a little bit more to it. I certainly would not advise, you know, a psychologist to use that and say, okay, well, now I know who my patient is. Don't assume you know somebody because you've seen their nail chart, but it's, it's interesting to look at your own. I probably never would have done it if not for Carl Jung. Um, Man is intelligent enough. I will consider what he has to say. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some Myers-Briggs. Yeah, honestly, I wish I had more. I wish there was more things I could sit here and talk about at greater length. Um, I've been reading bits and pieces. Honestly, the things that I've been reading here and there haven't really been sticking a whole lot. Uh, like I said, that's that's the whole brain thing. I think I need to figure out how to do something social. I, I don't know what that is. I at least need to trick my brain into believing that I am doing social things. I need to, I don't know if talking to people on the phone more frequently is quite what I need. I don't know if I need to like sit really close to the TV and watch people like watch movies where people are breaking the fourth wall and talking to me so it looks like I'm interacting. I don't know if I need to go out and walk close to people, like keep the six feet of distance with my face covered. Like I definitely need to do something. Staying inside, reading, exercising. It's starting to, um, I know that has worked for this long. It's starting to not quite do the trick anymore. So I do need to supplement what I'm doing with some new things. Um, because my brain is not buying it anymore. Uh, I actually read... Oh, yeah. So I mentioned I was interested in reading a book about neuroscience of sleep and dreams. I did get one. And I did start reading it. And that's... Uh, interesting it's a little bit more technical than i would like the book i'm reading is like meant for people who are i would guess undergrads in neuroscience or people who have some grounding in that material i don't have that so it just the first couple chapters go into well here are the different parts of the brain here's what they do here's the how they affect sleep it's it's not it's not a huge textbook but it's rigorous enough that i i there's a lot of information in there that I'm just kind of glossing over, like, okay, you know. In the past, I've tried to memorize all this stuff. I know it's going to be a waste of energy to try to remember, remember this for the long term or even the short term. Uh, everything I've ever read about physics, like quantum physics and whatever, special relativity, all those things, I don't remember hardly any of that. The effort I put into that was just, it, it was wasted in a lot of ways, because I don't remember any of it. So, yeah, trying to just focus on what is interesting and what is important. Now, I haven't got to the part about dreams yet, but sleep, there's interesting things about sleep. 
Um, yeah, the one interesting point that it makes very early on is that there is a global sleep deprivation epidemic. Uh, human beings, of course, evolved this need for sleep over millions of years. And it didn't start with humans. Apparently, it goes back quite a ways. It is interesting to hear him talk about the different kinds of animals. You go back you know, before primates, you have alligators, birds, uh, organisms that live in the sea for example, like almost all of them sleep and they sleep in slightly different ways. Um, so uh, underwater, I'm trying to think of what an underwater creature is. I want to say a dolphin is a good example of this, but a dolphin, they can sleep with one half of their mind being asleep at once. So the brain needs, the whole brain needs sleep. It has like a, a budget that it has to meet, or I guess a quota is a better word. It needs, there's a time quota, like per day that it needs to meet. And what they can do is they can swim using half of their brain while the other half is asleep and then switch it over uh, so that the other half of their brain is asleep. So they can just kind of be up all the time, but it, some part of the time while they're sleeping, they're, they're running at half capacity. But, you know, this, this need evolved over millions of years. We need, roughly speaking, eight hours of sleep per 24-hour cycle. And on the average, uh, the data tells us we're not getting that. We're getting maybe one hour less than that a night. And it's not because we've evolved to need less sleep over the past 100 years. We've just sort of removed it from our lives because we're busy and stressed out and we Maybe we can't sleep because of what's going on. There's just too much. We, you have poor sleep hygiene, for example. You're using your iPhone filled with blue light pumping into your eyes um, right before you go to sleep. You're doing things that don't help your brain get into that restful state. And this is causing a lot of problems. It's causing health problems. And of course... Uh, being sleep deprived and operating a motor vehicle is just as dangerous as being drunk in a lot of ways. You could probably, probably there's a, there's probably a quantity of alcohol you, you could consume that would make it more dangerous than any amount of sleep deprivation. But you know, there, you're impaired in either case. Um, causes the loss of productivity at work. Really, I mean, it seems like sleep is something that's... I, I actually have a, a very, very nice bed. Like, I, I went to a mattress store. I had to buy one. At the time, my back was hurting because I had just been moving. And I knew that the bed I had was not... Like, the mattress I had was not great. It was definitely not helping. If anything, it was hurting. And I was like, you know, I spent a third of my time on this thing. I want a really good one. I want one that is going to last... I want one that is really going to make me my back feel okay. It's at least not going to hurt it. Um, so I can just get good sleep. Because it is so much of our existence. We don't think about it. It seems kind of silly. And especially where I'm living, I have one room, which is maybe a third of the square footage in my place that is just, it's nothing but for sleeping. 
you know, it, it's not large enough that I could do anything else with it. And you're not supposed to use your bedroom. Like you're supposed to like leave some space for yourself to go like retreat to your brain can like say, this is where I sleep, it gets into that mode, falls asleep and it's not preoccupied with other things. So, I mean, I guess if you have a studio apartment, you know, if you're sleeping in the same, I don't know, the same place as your uh, TV is, you're sleeping in your living room, um, or at least in sight of your living room, there's, your brain might not get into sleep mode. But yeah, so I live in a one bedroom. I, you know, it's, yeah, a lot of the square footage I have is just this, this one room for this one purpose. And I'm passed out. I'm completely unconscious when I'm there engaging in this thing. But it is pretty important. And that's the reason why. So, I mean, it, I think it makes sense. It makes sense that you would care about how good the quality of your sleep is. That you would tend to it the way you would tend to anything else, like your health, uh, your nutrition, how much exercise you're getting. Um, really, the overall quality of your health is going to be affected by these things. So, yeah, sleep deprivation. That's, And I feel bad. Like I know people, they, they post about it on Facebook or Twitter or something. They say, like, I'm, I'm like people who just have chronic insomnia. They cannot fall asleep. And they're just constantly sleep deprived. That has got to be the worst. That would be so awful. I, I've never, like, I've, I've had problems sleeping, but they, they're not protracted. They don't last. And they tend to be based on things that I'm doing wrong or maybe not doing right. Uh, but I mean, if it's, if it's just chronic, if you're going to like doctors and psychologists and you're saying, well, I just cannot sleep. I am tired all the time. I'm having trouble focusing and they, they just can't, they can't do anything for you. They just don't know if there's nothing immediately wrong. Oh, I feel, I do not do well on too little sleep. It is just, it is the worst. I feel so bad for people who just, just snap my fingers and knock everyone out, especially right now. I feel like we all need hibernol. You have that old Saturday Night Live skit. It was making fun of like NyQuil, like the fact that you just like, you effectively take something that, NyQuil is just like, it's a sedative and alcohol put together in a bottle. You're not supposed to mix those things ever. Somehow they legally sell it. You can just like take a shot of this stuff and it basically just makes you loopy and you pass out. And so, I mean, you, you can just, you can just take that for a few days and it's not like it's doing anything to like fight the, like it, it's got acetaminophen in it. It's got drugs in it. Like it has things that will help with fever, uh, will reduce, you know, runny nose, that sort of thing, help with, will ease the pain of a sore throat. It, it has medicine in it, but it, it's not so much helping you as it is just kind of like knocking you out. So you just let the illness pass and you're, you're just zonked while you're waiting it out. So Hibernol was the fake product that Saturday Night Live came up with. It was like Chris Farley was the guy who started it. And he just, he takes Hibernol. Um, I don't remember what it was for. It was like he got sick or something. But anyway, he like, 
No, he doesn't get sick. He's like, let's just sleep through the whole flu season. So he takes it in the fall and he just hibernates until spring. He wakes up with like Rip Van Winkle hair and fingernails and yeah. Just lets you sleep through the whole flu season. Lots of diseases may come and go through your body throughout the whole time, but you won't know because you're out cold. This is what we need. We all need some hibernol. If we can like go into a, a, a state of suspended animation until they figure out how to make a goddamn vaccine. Yeah. This is what they should work on for next time. Next time this happens, like, you know, we're going to wake you all up in 18 months. <laughs> Enjoy the long nap. Enjoy the dreams. You know. Yeah, it's a start. I'll get, I'll get right on working on that. Okay. Well, this is almost, this is close to an hour. This was nice. This lets me kind of ease my way back into it. Uh, yeah. Brain is burning. Anyway, it's good talking to you again. I hope wherever you are in the midst of all this, you're healthy. Hope you're doing well. Hope you're keeping sane. We're going to get through this. Uh, yeah. It's rough, but we're going to get through this. So wherever you are, yeah, stay well. This is Jim. Until next time, cheers.